and their life easier, right? So that means look like a good partner, look like an opportunity to invest a good amount of capital over a period of years or what have you, both in this company and in your future endeavors. So I always try to frame it that way to say, to get people to think in well-informed, but rational and fair terms when they approach decision points in terms of the negotiation and in terms of how they present the investment terms to, to potential investors. It's a relationship-building exercise and a valuable one for you personally. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our interview with Josh Soloway, Chief Legal Officer at Multitasker, good friend of mine, uh, former investment banker, lawyer, entrepreneur, all around good guy, volunteer at our charity, Child Rescue. Josh, I think what I wanted to start with is, let's give people just the quickest recap if they missed the last episode. What's the elevator pitch on Multitasker? Multitasker is really a prop tech company, but much more than that, essentially, we are through a series of technology and service solutions removing friction from home home ownership we have a fully immersive virtual reality platform for home remodels and construction that enables people to walk around in a virtual model of their home prior to construction in other words they will see exact they will see and feel it as it will look after construction before they before they engage all the contractors to start doing, you know, pouring concrete, swinging hammers, and such. So, um, and, and then something... we have a dashboard that 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 streamlines various other elements of of home ownership, from maintenance to financing to sort to sort of you name it. But finding contractors, it's a a question I didn't ask in part one is, once you guys build the 3D model, does it have to be like the Oculus? goggles or will it work with any brand of VR goggles to walk through or do they come to your place to do that? How does that work? Uh, so they will work with any brand of, of VR goggles and they don't need to come to our place where they can do it in their own their own living room or what have you. Just please move to your coffee table before you do so. <laughs> have someone else there to like make sure they tell you when you're crashing into your wall. But what is most effective or at least most enjoyable for people is when they come into our studio and one person is able to obviously put on the the Oculus or VR goggles and walk around. And the other person is actually, we have a whole wall of screens, sort of like a wall and a half, and they can sit. The other person, let's say generally a spouse or what have you, can sit on the other wall or on the, on the couch or wherever, chairs, and kind of watch and see exactly what the other person is seeing as they're looking around. It's kind of cool. Obviously, they're experiencing it in a, in a, in a 2D sort of, or at least a non-immersive 3D sort of experience, but while the other person is, is walking around, then, of course, you could tell them, hey, change the faucet, change the, I don't like, what other paint colors are there? What other... And so as they're changing paint colors, flooring, fixtures, the other person is seeing that as well, which is pretty cool. And then, of course, you change. Hey, okay, honey, you try it. And then, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. nice. You know, it, it's interesting. I'm interested in your thoughts on this. 
the tech world has obviously changed everything, especially in the last 20 years, you know, and yet real estate has been a little slower to get on board. And in many ways, it feels like prop tech, property technology is really having its moment now. Do you have any thoughts about what has come together that it's being embraced so fully where in certain ways it's it was slow to get on on the tech world bandwagon. Well, I think that a lot of what happens this this goes beyond prop tech and into many areas of, of technology in, in Silicon Valley is there's a, a myopia right in in Silicon Valley most it's most pronounced, but in certainly in tech generally in that most tech people are early adopters, right? And they assume that others will be early adopters. And I saw that in my first company I ever worked for, Rivio, where we were building a, as I mentioned in my last, on our last session, a scaled down ERP system for small businesses. And what were the objections? Well, net zero is kind of slow. I don't want to have, do I have to unplug my fax machine? Do I have to, you know, what about putting out my information out there? And, you know, which obviously I'm dating myself. This was obviously a long time ago, given those objections, but which are laughable now, but at the time people were really concerned about those. So I say that to say there were a lot of assumptions made that everyone's just going to jump on and everybody wants to drive forward with tech. And um, one of the strengths of this company is that why do we do construction? Why do we actually have a construction on? Well, because we try to find and experience the pain points before we try to solve them with tech. So if you take a, a, as opposed to sort of developing the tech and then finding the pain points to some extent, right, which is sort of puts you in the, you know, to the man with a hammer, everything in the nail, world is a nail kind of mindset, right? You're just out there looking. Not to say that they're, that uh, I don't want to paint tech with a broad brush, but that can happen a lot. So this is all to say that because we do that, and we take that approach. And because I, I think we have a better ability to tailor our solutions to the actual stakeholders, i.e. contractors, general contractors, subcontractors, homeowners, right? And so I think that what people underappreciate for in the real estate space is how low tech so much of it is and how, how disconnected so many of the pieces are from technology and from a central decision maker, right? There's, it's just so fragmented. You have contractors, subcontractors, you have title companies, escrow companies, mortgage banks that aren't even, I'm not talking about Bank of America, City, et cetera. I'm talking about, you know, Sprout Home Mortgage, Change Mortgage, you know, whatever it is, Endeavor Bank, like smaller, all of these little stakeholders, and they all have their, they're just not all synced up. And there's the world, the, the landscape so fragmented. The last thing I'll say about it is an example, though we're addressing this too, but so many have, I can't tell you how many people, how many companies have pitched me over the last five years on putting all of real estate on blockchain, title on blockchain. And well, nobody, it, it seems the most obvious thing in the world, right? Why wouldn't you want to have title on blockchain? That makes perfect sense. But the entry point is so difficult because again, these technologists say, well, it makes sense. Of course, it's going to happen. We have the solution. It, it makes perfect sense. But at the end of the day, it's very difficult to implement because Real estate is also inherently local. There's tons of local local regulation, zoning, all of that kind of stuff. And so you have to have city buy-in at the local level. You have to have uh, title companies buy-in at scale. You have to have you know, city, state. You have to have the financing players 
tied in. It, there's a, it, these things are much more complex and fragmented than I think people realize. So I think that's the answer. Yeah, it's like, the, well, the logic is there. Like, as I'm listening to you, what I'm hearing is the logic is there, but people are underestimating the bureaucracy and, you know, big ships turn slowly. Right. You know? <laughs> when there's so many people who can veto it, when there's, you know, like you need everyone to say yes and any one break in the chain means it doesn't happen because, you know, the, the city regulator will sign off, but the state regulator won't or... <laughs> You know, it's right? it's it's big ships turn slowly. Armadas with a mix of big ships and small ships turn even slower. It's <laughs> certainly not in unison, right? Yeah. So they crash into each other. Right? Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. You need some politician who thinks this is how I'm going to get reelected as governor is to fix our yeah. state's real estate. Okay. Well, I, I think maybe the next question I have is, you know, in the last however many you know, decade, decade and a half, we've been hanging out. A lot of our conversations have focused around fundraising. And I think about, especially your last few years, helping so many businesses raise their first capital or raise their next round. I'm I'm interested, maybe compared to your earlier fundraising experience where you had your broker-dealer licenses and you're the one asking for the money. I'm interested, what kind of observations you've made in the last few years as far as those people who come to you and, you know, when you're back at your last law firms, and saying, hey, we need to raise money. Can you help us with the paperwork or whatever, right? When you think about the folks who actually raised the millions versus the ones that didn't, what are you seeing in common amongst those entrepreneurs? You know, they're coming to you for legal work, but you're seeing all sorts of things in their business. What are you seeing amongst the ones that actually have the successful raises? I mean, it's, I hate to say it's a mixed bag, but it's a mixed bag. Because in the in the technology space, when you're talking really early stage, you're there really aren't many bankers that do that work. So really, as a lawyer, you end up providing a lot of that guidance that they might get from a banker, or at least maybe that's just me because of the nature of my background and why people choose me over the many other lawyers that they could have chosen, which is much more than paperwork, right? It's just about structuring, negotiating, which a lot, which to be fair, that's what, what lawyers do all the time. And, and that's the role. But also in terms of helping to figure out what the right type of capital is for them and capital partners. So you play more of that role in these early stage and in the technology spaces. There just aren't as many, there aren't many, though I, I know a couple of bankers that really specialize in early stage finance fundraising, right? For tech companies. That's starting to change. But what is the... So, so what are a couple of commonalities? I, you know, is it like the humility to actually listen instead of talk the whole time? Like what, what are some commonalities amongst... Those, those startup founders that you see actually get funded? I mean, the obvious is the ones that have had an exit before and are already, like, that's just easier. They have the network. If they have the network, it's infinitely easier. So let's take that off the table, right? People who came from the right schools, came from the right companies like Google or Facebook or what have you, who have those things, it's certainly easier, right? Because, you know, they just have that pedigree. Other than that, what I see is um, is really clear understanding of of where they fit, the right combination of uh, if they're a hardcore technology right player and they really they have something super technical that they can explain to non they either a have to be able to translate that into layman's terms right to and to and to make that and to sell it well so they have to have the right team members or b they have to have that right network of other technology hardcore technologists which often they do they have a mentor they have you know a, a former boss who will give them some money they have those things really matter too so i think one is they have they have a clear view of 
what they're doing and what the market looks like for them, what where they sit in it, what the opportunity set is, and they can articulate that better. I think the be- the, the other question is not just who is successful in raising capital, but who is successful in raising the right capital, right? I, I think that is something that should be looked at as well. A lot of, look, now you look at like Tiger, right? They're out there writing checks at much earlier stages, notwithstanding they pulled back a little bit. Do on you know that. their website? What's their website? Tiger Global? I don't know their website. What is their website? Um, tell you. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're out there writing much earlier checks. Will that continue? Probably will pull back because things are going to get less frothy, are getting less frothy. And so they pro- people will probably, s- the bigger funds are not as likely to keep going as early stage in the cycle. But I think, so I think there's the right type of capital is attracted. When I say that, I mean, not just looking at getting a good deal, right, is what I mean. Really getting a good deal. And I think some of that has to do with having not just the technology, but having the right leadership comprised of, yes, great technologists, but also sound business minds, good good experience either on the investment banking, venture, or legal side, let's say, where people aren't just looking at it as you and I have often talked about as the easy button. Oh, if I just get X million dollars in, then I'm, I'm off to the races and I don't have to think about capital. Well, the problem is if you take it in on the wrong terms, you've basically gutted any return for yourself or and or your employees or your teammates. And or you've, all- you've limited your next round. You, you so overpriced this round in the name, you know, like you're so proud to get a high valuation. You made it incredibly hard to do another round at a higher valuation because you already priced that into the last round, right? Right, right. And, or, or you've frozen out friendlier capital that might've come in at a lower valuation, but you know, it's, it's, you know, it's a mixed bag. I think you have to really take people, people need to tailor things and, and need to look to tailor things to tailor the capital they bring into their actual business and their actual revenue timelines and their actual opportunity set, not just look for the easy, quick, biggest, quickest, biggest, capital. I think the people who've raised well, and I say well, meaning the right capital and are patient, balance patience and urgency, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you want to, I've been saying to people for a few years, look, who knows how long this is going to, this whole cycle is going to last. So don't hesitate to raise capital, but balance that against not taking on more than you need. And that's what I try to help people find the right balance. And also, can you, how, how much can you do before you go to the VCs? You know, how much can you raise in your network? How much can you um, raise on the most favorable terms possible to, to kind of, before you go off to the VCs? Because VCs are expensive money. That, that, and, and the more risk they're taking, the more expensive it is. And that's, by the way, totally fair. If they're coming in early, they're going to take a bigger, they're taking yeah. a bigger risk and they should, you know, they should yeah. probably put in place more stringent controls and, you know, a more aggressive valuation in their favor, et cetera. Yeah. You know, you've done the paperwork for organizations that have raised absurd amounts of money. I'm thinking about like even somebody back in your PwC days, you know, some of those became obviously enormous funds. But when you think of actual dollars that you raised, where you got somebody to write the check, have you ever counted, counted up how much you think that is? If you add them all together over the years? Not really. I don't know. I mean, I've done that on the legal side. A lot. I just didn't get paid as a banker. Yeah, so yeah. that's why I said no, I no. Know. Yeah, I mean, um, like, 
on so the all together, I mean, at least a hundred million dollars, I'm sure. I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, at least. Yeah. And so, and if you count M&A deals and things like that. Oh yeah, it way up. Yeah, then it's even more. But yeah, it's, it's a lot, but so I, yeah. Let, let's talk about that. Where you were the one talking to the investor, holding their hand, getting them to write the check. You know, I feel like even amongst our friends, many of us do that differently. I'm, I'm yep. interested how you think of the recipe. Like for me, I think of the like, like be like befriend, build rapport really early on, try to figure out what's in their mind. What's their mandate? What did they, what, like, what are the actual 100%. words they use to frame the kind of ROI they're looking for? And like, like, that's why I love buying people lunch. Buy lunch, get to know them, ask them about what they're doing, ask them about what they're trying to accomplish. And you've got that excuse of like, it's almost like it's like impolite to talk business before the food gets there. So I've got this like prep session ahead of time to like find out about them and find out like, what are the words that they use to describe their world and describe their future so that I can reframe what we're offering in their language sometimes or things like that. Do, do you have any, do you have any recipe things or, or at least principles that you feel like? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly, I think the the first thing I always try to do is understand what is their actual profile look like, because there's no point in trying to sell someone something that they don't or can't even you know, invest in. Like I tell people all the time that you have to really be aware of what do they, where okay. do they invest, what industry, what do they have left in their current fund, they may have already totally exhausted their prop tech allocation and you're going in selling our prop tech. You know, so I think, I think things like that. I tell you yeah, what really I mean. Like, you people have to understand if I'm running a fixed income fund, I can't invest in equities. It's not my money. It's someone else's money. And they gave it to me to go invest in what I said I was going to invest in. I think that's lost on a lot of people who aren't in the industry, which is understandable, but you know, you look at these people who are running a fund and they seem like a captain of industry. They could do whatever they want. Well, not really. It's not their money. Someone gave them money to invest in middle market fixed income. That's what they have to invest in. Somebody just, you know, for our, at Grace Oak Investments, we're doing our 506C raise. You know, we're looking at mm -hmm. short-term rentals and, you know, tiny house adventure cabins and cool places, right? And I got a cold email from this woman who's trying to sell me on, on the introductions to pension funds she can get me. I was like, do you, like, what are you talking about? There's no way pension, like after I have a, after I have a billion in AUM, I want those meetings. There's no way they are taking that meeting with me. No, I am not paying you $25,000 for introductions to people who do not buy in at our size of fund. Right. Right. Um, so assuming you get past that and you're like, you are with somebody who appears to be the right profile, you know, like I'm thinking about one of my mentors who is FBI counterintelligence. Right. And he says, Recruiting, recruiting an intelligence officer, recruiting a diplomat from a foreign country is a lot like dating. He says it's a, like the best analogy is thinking about like easing into it and having it be like an organic stepping up of the relationship. I'm interested if you feel like that analogy applies in, in capital raising. A hundred percent, because I'll, I'll give you an example. All right. I went out on the banking side. I had a deal that was done. I mean, it was done. They called me on my birthday to tell me it was done. And they were so thrilled that they being the fund, they were so thrilled. This was a big insurance company and there was their uh, energy fund. We did a lot of work together and they were thrilled. They said, we really are so excited to move forward with this deal. We really like these guys. We love the play. We love the whole thing. I just wanted to call you and tell you first and foremost, I just wanted to say thank you. And we're, we're definitely moving forward. 
this is awesome. Go out to dinner with my wife and some friends and feeling good. The next day, that was a Friday. So it was a Friday birthday. It's going the weekend feeling pretty good. Come Monday, they said, sorry, we're not doing the deal. So what, what do you, what, what happened? Well, apparently they had called, there was a father and a son involved in this project. And the father who was the CEO said, um, oh, this is so great. I'm, I'm retiring as soon as it's so great that you guys are coming in. I'm retiring and uh, you know, I'm leaving the company. It's going to be great. You know, so I, I really like, I really appreciate you guys. I'm so thrilled you're coming in. Hello. They weren't coming in to give you an exit. They're coming in for, because they believed in you to run the company. And, uh, you know, when they pull back, you know, of course I'm saying, well, you know, can you, you know, we can, we can talk to them, obviously have them stick around it. But for them, it was too late because it was a values mismatch. It was a, they felt like they could, they just, the whole complexion of the thing changed because the people that they were buying and bear in mind, that wasn't, that was not in the tech space. That was an oil and gas company. So really some people would say, well, so what? It was the, it was the, the, the land, it was the resource that should have mattered. But no, I mean, it was, it was the, it was the team. That's what mattered uh, to them. And obviously the other things matter too. So in this, in, in my current, you know, in, in my te- in the tech industry, obviously it's, it's, yes, it's the technology, but it's also the team. That's no secret. People talk about that all the time, but absolutely you gotta, you've, you've got to pay attention to what matters to them and make sure that, that, that is a fit. I always say to founders, that or to, to startups in general, that you want to look like a good partner when you're raising money. You want to look like you're going to be a good partner because it may sound like a high class problem, but for a for a guy or a gal working at a VC fund or other in private equity or whatever, they have a job to do. Their job is to invest a certain invest the capital that they've been given by investors in a certain set of you know somewhat defined range of of investments and companies, what have you, and get a certain amount of return and invest a certain amount in each range that they're actually able to invest, you know, maybe a million up to 10 million, maybe 10 million to 20 million, 50 to hundred, whatever it is for their particular fund. And that sounds like, well, that's, that sounds like a, like a high class problem to have. Their problem is they got to find enough companies to put that money into. And that's actually creates stress for them, right? That's, that's their job. That's how they're evaluated. So why do I say that? Right. I say that because what do they want to do? What's the best way for them to do that? Well, they want to find good entrepreneurs that they can back over and over and over again. That's That makes their job and their life easier, right? So that means look like a good partner. Look like an opportunity to invest a good amount of capital over a period of years or what have you, both in this company and in your future endeavors. So I always try to frame it that way to say, to get people to think in well-informed, but rational and fair terms when they approach decision points in terms of the negotiation and in terms of how they present the investment terms to to potential investors. It's a relationship building exercise and a valuable one for you personally and for your company. You know, there's a million ways to screw up that relationship. When you think about, when you think about how to make sure it goes well, what you do, Mm -hmm. What's one of those principles? Ask, right? Ask some questions. Ask about what is this fund? What is it that makes sets them apart from others? I'm just laughing because it's the simplest thing. Nobody's going to be shocked by that answer. And as soon as you said it, I started thinking like, how many times have I sat around in conversations where people are just guessing and guessing and guessing, right? And they're like, well, I bet, it, I, bet, I bet it's like this. I bet this is what matters to them. I bet they're, I, I'm, sh- I, I'm sure that they're thinking about it this way. It's like, why don't we ask? Is it that we don't want to look dumb? 
Is it that we want to tell ourselves that we already know? It's such a simple thing and it is not done nearly enough, right? Totally. I mean, look, for your own benefit, even if not just for the sale, notwithstanding, even putting aside the fact that the best way to sell is to ask, right? I mean, number one, to make the other person even feel heard because it, you know, and, and want to, you know, connect with you. But which is frankly even harder these days now that a lot of this stuff is happening over phone calls and Zoom, right? Roadshows are not happening in person as much. You know, I have, uh, you know, one of, one of my brothers is in the midst of raising a three, I think now $400 million fund, and he's not leaving his office and he's already done it. You know, it's like, well, you know, that, that's, uh, that's just how it's being done now. So the, the other reason though, obviously, aside from making the sale is in connecting is one of the other things, and you asked about how I, I think about approaching the fundraisers is I also try to think of what's in their portfolio. Because if the greatest opportunity for a lot of VCs is to take advantage of what's already in their portfolio to add value to something after they invest. So if um, a company that, that, that has a particular technology that would be well, that they could plug in and connect with another company that has the audience for that technology, or that could be the audience for that technology. There, there are so many interconnection opportunities within a portfolio. And so, and that's not lost on, on good portfolio managers, right? They, and that's the right partnership. So you want to pay attention to what's in their portfolio. Would you like to meet the CEO of that other company? Would you like to connect with their audience, with their customer base, with their channel partners, what have you? So it makes good sense to ask about that stuff and to ask about how and if those funds are connecting their portfolio companies with one another or adding value to those portfolio companies through their networks, as well as you know, their sort of guidance and involvement. Those yeah. things matter. Get examples. That's It matters. Plus, yeah. then people are talking about themselves and what they do and and all that. And, and heck, it's a lot of the time, as you know, better than, you know, most just because you're so good at it, you can make a lot of I me mean, can make a sale pretty easily by saying less and letting them say more, right? People just like you right now. Talk about finding the entrepreneur who you like, and you want to back over and over again. It's like, well, oh man, I don't know. I really like this guy. I trust him. Well, he hardly, he may have hardly said anything about himself. He just asked a lot of questions and was interested in you. And People don't pay as much attention to that. Boy, this guy seems really smart. Well, he asked a bunch of questions. He hardly said anything about himself, right? Which is tough because so many friendly, outgoing people that end up starting companies love to talk, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, for me, I have to like, I have to actively work on that really hard because I, I have no shortage of things to say at any given moment. You know, like no matter what comment they just made, I have something to say about it. You know, one of the interesting pieces of advice on this that I like comes from Mark because he has that same problem. He got given this advice that whenever they went into the meetings, he was supposed to pull out a notepad and a pen. And the first thing to do is write in big letters on the top of the notepad to himself, write the word listen. And he said it ended up turning things around when he was earlier in his career because, because he, just having that physical reminder sitting there in front of him, even if he never took any other notes. But it is this interesting thing of like, if you're like me and you struggle to not over talk, pulling out a notebook and taking a lot of notes, what they're saying, what it, what it does to me, I have these notebooks filled. I mean, filled like little moleskins that I bring on everything filled. I never go back and read them. I'm actually kind of proud to have the stack. I never go back and read them. However, every once in a while, they come in extremely handy when I need to go find that one thing that I know I wrote down. Okay. But one of the things it does for me is because I can't write as fast as they talk, when they when they finish their sentence and go to take a breath, I don't jump in because I'm too busy finishing writing down something. 
And it gives them that room to not be done yet. You know, like, I don't know. I was like 20 years old when I first read Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. Can't remember who that's by. Such a great book. But he said, hey, if you have a trouble interrupt, if you have, if you're an interrupter, what you need to do is let them finish their sentence and take a full breath in and out before you start saying whatever you were going to say. And if in that full breath, they haven't started talking, then you're allowed to talk. And otherwise you're interrupting. It's so hard to do. It's so hard. And yet it's such a good chance of helping them feel listened to. Speaking of good books, I know you love Oren Claff, uh, Pitch Anything, Flip the Script. I was really happy to have him on the show. I'm interested, you know, as we wind down here, do you have another fundraising book that you'd recommend to people? Oh or gosh. book that would help you with fundraising? Well, I mean, are those your favorites? Never Split the Difference is a great mm. thing to have in mind when you're negotiating. That's for sure. I think if you're in the tech industry, you know, I think I think that a must read is Brad Feld's, you know, Brad Feld's VC, you know, venture finance book. I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of it, even though because I usually have it on my we're not in our office these days. I have it always on my on my desk. But venture deals is is I think a must read for any entrepreneur looking to raise VC capital. P.S. I don't know if I told you, but I've heard about him for like, I don't know, 14 years from you. Right. Mm -hmm. And last year he reached out to be on the show. I was so excited to have him on the show. And, was he on the show? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And I like the whole time I'm thinking about John. So anyways, I brought you up on the show to him or maybe before the show. And he's interesting, a guy who's done that much volume. What are his observations, right? Yeah. Well, he's very, look, he has the, I'm a, I'm a Boulder guy. You know, he, he lives in Boulder. He obviously, as you may know, and I went to University of Colorado. So uh, he really created what he calls the Boulder ethos, which is actually goes back to our conversation in the last, last episode, right? Which is you go first, you connect, you do the thing for people. You can, you just, you do it, right? You help out. And that is what I think is so magical about that ecosystem that they've created in a relatively small place. Granted, it's a it's an idyllic place where people of means self-select in, but it's it is there is something special about that community, and I think it has to do with that what he terms the Boulder ethos. And I've seen it, I've seen him do it personally right in front of me. For people, I'll give you an anecdote in favor of Brad, and I think it says a lot. Is that there was an I was at a I was at an event and someone was talking to him. Someone came up and you know obviously a line of people coming to talk to him after he got off the at the stage of the panel. And he a young engineer came in and said, "Hey, look, I've been living here in Boulder for you know for however many years, five years, and I've got my wife and a kid, but I cannot find another job. I just can't seem to connect with the right people. I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but I can't seem to find that right opportunity. I'm a full stack engineer. Blah blah blah." He says, well, here's my email. Why don't you send me some bolts on what you're looking for, what you've done, just attach your resume. It's easy for me to just send it around to a, you know, a few hundred CEOs in our network. That's, that's easy for me to do, no problem. And, you know, because the guy said, I want to stay here. I want to be part of this community. I like being here. And he, he did that. And I think that says a lot. And I know some other people at Foundry who, who have a similar mindset are always willing to help. And it's not as transactional. And I know, we're, I know we're out of time here. But to me, it goes back to what I was saying, I feel like is one of your superpowers, which is generosity. Generosity is a magnet. Humility to ask, generosity to like have the courage to go first, even when you might not get something out of it. It's magnetic. It's super it's also doesn't mean you're you're not a, you're not going to be taking advantage of. I mean, not a well, Brad would be nowhere near as successful if he were just a, a you know going to roll over all the time. That's not what sure. he's doing. You know, in, in negotiations, he's very good at what he does. It also has confidence, right? Uh, I you know I 
I think, I think it's, it's also just a better way to live your life, frankly. Um, yeah, it's got to make him enjoyable. happier to live like that, right? Absolutely. So I think, um, yeah, I really commend him for that. I think that I commend him for writing venture deals, for putting it out there. You know, this is how, these are the things to think about. So as opposed to solely being a VC, the deck is stacked in your favor because a company CEO negotiates that deal how many times, right? Well, how many rounds of financing do they do? When say they get to an E round, you know, they've done that, you know, five times, right? Maybe six with a proceed, right? So it's, whereas a VC is doing that every day, all day, that's their job, right? They're, They're doing it hundreds of times negotiating the same round. So the level of mastery around that is nowhere near comparable, right? And so to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to spend the time to put out there specifically. And granted, people write blogs and a lot of people are doing that. But I think they've gone, he and Jason and Seth, they've gone beyond even just writing the book. They're out there teaching the material, you know, whether it's on Kaufman or other places. And I think that's, I think that's really special. I really do. I think that that giving mindset is huge. Love it. Okay, well, where can people check out Multitasker online and where's the best places to connect with you? On- so they can, they can definitely check out uh, Multitasker at gomultitasker.com. And as far as me on social, I'm on LinkedIn as, is, as, as almost as everybody, anyone and everyone. And my Twitter, which is not updated as regularly, perhaps as it should be. Actually, I think, I think we do a decent job, but is, uh, is Mr. Rainmaker NY at, uh, on Twitter. And uh, yeah, those are the socials at the moment. Love it. Okay, man. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. This is great. Bye, everyone.